Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi and thrilled that today Denisha Jones is here. Hi, Denisha. Hi, Heather. <laughs> what do you want folks to know about you? Oh, such a great question. Um, <laughs> I am currently the executive director of Defending the Early Years. We are a national nonprofit who really works on early childhood advocacy for teachers and parents of young children. Um, but my main um, bulk of the work in the field has been in teacher education for over 20 years now, um, teaching uh, mainly early childhood, but then elementary because early childhood programs started to go away from colleges and oh, universities. Yep. I had to adapt and do elementary, right? K through yeah. six. Although I started as a kindergarten teacher in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. um, I was a preschool teacher in Indiana and a preschool director in California, but I, I spent most of my time doing teacher education, which I still do part-time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a play warrior, advocate, researcher, believer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Big part of what I've been doing uh, is, is that as well, too. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Where were you in Indiana? I did my PhD at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, that's where my yeah. um, my youngest and their wife are working on PhD there. But I'm in Indiana. I'm in Lafayette. Oh, you're in Lafayette. Okay. My yeah. sister and her two kids still live there. They live in Indianapolis. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was out in Bloomington for five years. So who's cool. there for less? <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you for all of that. And thank you for being on. We're going to, um, we're going to sort of, I think, piggyback a little bit because I had Dale Farron on a, a few weeks ago um, and everybody loved that episode. So I think this is going to be a great extension of that. Um, the quote to get us started um, comes from her or the article, the NPR article about her study. Um, the article is called Top Researcher Says It's Time to Rethink Our Entire Approach to Preschool, which I love, and you can find it at NPR. Um, but here's the quote. But the biggest lesson Farron has drawn from her research is that we've simply asked too much of pre-K based on early results from what were essentially showcase pilot programs. We tend to want a magic bullet, she says. Whoever thought that you could provide a four-year-old from an impoverished family with five and a half hours a day, nine months a year of preschool, and close the achievement gap and send them to college at a higher rate, she asks. I mean, why? Why do we put so much pressure on our pre-K programs? We might actually get better results, she says, from simply letting little children play. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, I remember reading it, Heather, and I, that last line, I was like, this is it. Yes. Is it. Yeah. I was like, this is the article. This is everything. Like yes. I was, I was floored by it because it just, yeah. it ended so perfectly. Like maybe we should just let them play. Yeah. What, a, what a revolutionary knew. idea. Yeah, revolutionary <laughs> idea. Right? I knew it. I believed it. But this was before I even knew about her research, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was just, it summed it up for me. I was like, this is it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we have to get her back on too. So maybe <laughs> maybe we need a panel or something. But so um, so you did some you did a presentation and some work at the NACI com conference last uh, fall. I think it was was it in November last yes, year? November. Yeah, November. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, that Carol Garbodin Murray, who's on the show a lot, has talked a lot about since she was there. 
And um, and it was along these lines, right? Dale was speaking with you and Keisha Reed was speaking with you. And um, tell us a little bit about, about yeah. that conversation. So after that article came out, we were sharing it amongst everyone at DEY. And then literally Dale just emails me and I <laughs> she's like, hey, Denisha, huge fan of DEY. I wrote this blog. Would you mind publishing it? And I was like, no yeah. way. Like, you're stuck, <laughs> like, who is this? Who do we know at Vanderbilt? How can we connect with her? Yeah. And it was just Christmas. She just sent it to us, right? Yeah. So we published her blog on early learning developmental competencies where she makes the argument that um, the reason why the Tennessee results are not coming out the way they are is because the academic nature of the preschools, right? Mm -hmm. So state-funded preschools, they're academic in nature. They focused on surface skills and not the deeper skills that you get in play-based programs or that what she calls economically secure families can afford to get mm -hmm. for their children, to give their children, right? Yeah. And so that was great. So we got her, we published the blog right away. Um, all of my colleagues were interested at the time. I was still the director of the Art of Teaching program at Sarah Lawrence College. They were really into it. We did a panel discussion with her. Um, and then we said, well, well, Dale, like we'd love to do a NACI presentation with you. You know, DEY typically had host um, like an organizing meeting at NACI, although the venue we used for that wasn't still available. So we were trying to think about how to still hold a, a meeting in a space there because um, it's how I found DEY was through a NACI. And oh, wow. found us through NACI as well. So it's important <laughs> that we're there and we're on the program. So Dale said yes. So we put together, we've been, I've been trying to put together these research into practice sessions where we really look at the research and talk about what does it mean in practice. So we partnered with Dale to present her research findings and then Keisha talking about how those research findings and other things guide her practice to really give this really open-ended child-centered um, type program, right? So mm -hmm. Keisha um, directs a program in Maryland called um, Discovery, uh, A Place for Childhood. And yeah. so she's amazing. Yeah, she is. <laughs> so it was really great. You know, we we came in the NACI and we we started off in the beginning. I just went quickly about DEY, what we do, what we're trying to do. Um, and then Dale got to launch into the research, which I'm sure she talked about in her wonderful um, session with you guys. Mm -hmm. I think Keisha talked about like how that knowledge about what children really need, which is not academics, which is not letters and numbers, but it's mm -hmm. relationships and exploration and curiosity, like how that drives the work she does every day. And, you know, we were talking about it and 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 Dale was like, you know, DY needs to do something with this. This is your wheelhouse. And I'm like, yeah, I'm now the full-time executive director. We <laughs> so we decided to launch our campaign and it's really like an awareness campaign, right? There's no policy right now that we can get behind and ask people to advocate mm -hmm. for, but we want to get people talking about this issue that constantly I, I receive emails from people saying, I'm asked to do this. I'm being told to do this. I'm an early child teacher. I'm being told to do this is there any research behind this, right? Mm -hmm. or why do and I'm like, no, there's so much research out there, what we should be doing, right? And then right. people are being asked to do what's not. So so our campaign on really like linking high quality and child development and nothing else, right? All mm -hmm. of these other ideas, like this idea that pre-K can close the achievement gap and, and boost, you know, college attendance rate, where yeah. does that come from, right? That's right. not what... 30, 40, 50 years of early childhood research has really told yeah. us that's where people who are in charge kind of go with it, right? And right. so it leads us down this path where people are asked to do things that have no basis in research and, and, and really aren't proven to really help children develop well, right? Mm -hmm. So using, yeah. and I think the Tennessee studies speak to that, right? And they, that's not what they wanted when they said, let's fund. That's, that's what I love about this is that the, she, she was expecting completely different results. 
and and was surprised and sort of sounds like she resisted a little bit when the when the yeah. data started coming in that this wasn't as effective as they'd hoped it would be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was embarrassing, right? It, it was embarrassing <laughs> for her, the group of researchers funded by the state to do this work that, you know, everyone latched on the first year of findings, which was mm -hmm. that, of course, the pre-K kids who went to pre-K, their scores were up, everyone, that's great. Okay, but then no one <laughs> wanted to get into the little third grade, things are not looking good in sixth mm -hmm. grade. Oh my God, there's like a negative correlation here by sixth yeah. grade, that's really not okay. And I get it. Like we, we, we want to be, and it's, and at first I remember, well, I think Peter Gray might've posted it first. And of course mm -hmm. it was like, let's not trash early childhood. People aren't going right. to, and I understand that implicit argument to say that, but we're not saying don't fund early childhood. We're saying stop mandating academically rigorous early childhood is the only option. You know, right. we have President Joe Biden really arguing that childcare is not what young kids need wow. because he wants a distinction between childcare and yeah. preschool. I need that man to stop. I, I know he does it all the time. He was <laughs> like school, not daycare. <laughs> <laughs> care is care for yeah. children and look at yeah. carol's amazing work right care mm -hmm. is education like i i need people to stop acting like caring for children their custodial care is not important and, right. and it's only about letters and numbers and that sort of stuff right so yeah. i am um, i so i've been uh doing some research on readiness on school readiness for mm -hmm. um for a writing project that i'm doing and so i found a, a spreadsheet that was put together Oh, I can't remember the people who put together put it together now um, uh, in 2018. And they did a spreadsheet of every state and whether they'd adopted a school readiness definition and if they had, what the definition was. And there's 26 states that have adopted a definition, but the definitions are very vague. And it's much more about um, intellectual development than academic stuff. And it's there's physical development included in there. And there's... Um, approaches to learning that they talk about in these definitions and they talk about mathematical thinking and they talk about early literacy but there's nothing about letters and and rote memorization and shape and color recognition it, it, and it just like I don't know that it surprised me but then I'm thinking so why do we when these when these definitions are so vague and so broad why do we then take this narrow definition of our own and say letters, numbers, um, reading, uh, early reading is what, what children need. Yeah. It makes me think of something I read in grad school, I think by Alfie Cohn, right? I think mm, it was- Love Alfie Cohn. Yeah, love Alfie, right? I remember the first time I was actually at an undergrad conference. I, I had just finished undergrad teaching my first year in kindergarten. And I go to this Capital Delta Pi conference, Honor Society for Teachers. Uh -huh. And he's like the keynote. And he's literally standing out there all of five foot, whatever. And he's so <laughs> passionate and he's yelling and screaming <laughs> at the audience about what we do to children. And I'm like, is this for real? I've never <laughs> seen someone get so passionate about yeah. it. And I was like hooked after that. But in one yeah. of his books, I think it might be punished by rewards, right? But he talks about what it does to push for standardization and why we use standards. And it's because it's efficient. Mm -hmm. Because approaches to learning, right? When you take, and I'm a researcher, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I do this stuff all day, but I'm not, I, I I go in, I lean into the things that are hard to measure of, as opposed to people who want the things that are, they don't yeah. like the things that are, that are not easy to measure. So when you say that a child is eager to pursue new topics, 
most quantitative people will just look at you like you're not like how do I measure that right? right you can specifically tell someone if they can recognize the letter a in that moment in mm -hmm. that way so it's so easy so we we come up with these things because they're easy one and because we all went through them right yeah we yeah. all remember being taught our letters and numbers so we can't imagine a preschool program that isn't teaching kids their letters and numbers mm -hmm. right we, but we always think it was one way I don't know yeah. if we sat there didactically and taught a b or in a conversation with our teacher she was like oh yeah that's the letter b you're talking about <laughs> i don't know exactly yeah. how it came about right but we assume that it was sitting in rows very uncomfortable little children going yeah d is for dog and c is for cat i don't yeah. In that way right no so our push to want to make things simple we want to measure things quick and easy. And I think that's part of the problem, right? And that's a, that's not just early education, early childhood, that's America in general, that's yeah. human beings, right? To a certain extent that society wants the quick, easy, measurable right. things, right? We want some, that magic bullet, as they said in the quote, and asking people to document what students are doing without a tool that everyone uses the same is really mm -hmm. challenging for a lot of people to get behind. And, and so I think it's the biggest problem, right? How do we get people to, I, I, I'm not here. We, it doesn't matter if this four-year-old can do what that four-year-old can do or that, you know, like that's yeah. not the goal of early childhood to me, but it's really just, you know, it has to be more individual than that, but that creates problems in a system that wants everyone to be the same. Right. Everyone you know, that misuse of equity too, that like, it's not equitable if everyone isn't getting the same thing, right? And mm -hmm. that's can you, can you talk more about the equity? Yeah, yeah, for and sure. how that so fits into this? It's a, it's a big issue, right? Like, so I hear, I remember one time there was, um, there was this thing happening, I think it was in Boston and, and these early, yeah, it was in Boston and these early childhood teachers, like kindergarten teachers were like advocating for more play. They were like, went to the school board and were like, this is ridiculous. We need more play. And so we reached out to them and DEY and was like, Hey, we'd love to support your efforts. And, and she was like, well, you know what we need is what do we say when the superintendent tells me those poor black and brown kids don't need play. Oh they God. need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to count. And I'm like, for, I mean, like my one hat is like, that's racist, right? But right. <laughs> that's racist because people, then they shut down, right? Uh -huh. But it's a misuse of equity. How about that, right? So there's this this misuse of equity, this like, that 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 these kids, because of them, right? These kids, meaning black, brown, poor, yep. right? That they don't need what other kids have because they're on the losing end of our achievement gap system, uh -huh. right? Like, even the gap itself to me is a myth, right? right. But like, let's go with that, right? <laughs> they're on the losing end of this achievement gap, so they need other things. That to me is a misuse of equity. Equity doesn't say um, you don't have, you can't do this, so you're, you have to get this because this is what you need. Equity says you need this, and it doesn't matter what they need or what they have. You mm -hmm. need this, we're going to give you this, right? Yeah. Poor black and brown children don't have the freedom to play. They don't have experiences that foster resilience and confidence through play. They don't even sometimes have neighborhoods where they're free to roam and free to play. That's what they need. Right. So it's a misuse of equity to say because they're black and brown, because they're poor, because they're at risk, which I still don't know what they're at risk of. Right. They need something less than what other children who who are born into better off situations who are more advanced. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a horrible, horrible sentiment. And so I think we have to call that out every time we hear it. And people hear it all the time. People say it with the most pure, perfect intentions. They actually think it's the best thing. Like, no, no, these kids, right? This is how I challenge, you know, poverty by making sure that these kids get this, this, and that. And I'm like, actually, it's it's not, right? It's it's right. it's the 
it's a misuse of equity. That's not what we mean by equity. Mm -hmm. I want those kids to have the same experiences as these kids have because they need the same thing. And, and then we can worry about the other things that they don't have, right? And how, yeah. and yes, they need stable housing and they need, you know, food security and those sorts of things. But on the basis, they need the same environments right. for learning yeah. that other kids need as well, too. Yeah. And of course, they're, yeah. So they're at risk for not meeting white normative standards that we've yeah, determined they need to be white middle if class wanna, children. If you want to talk about what they're at risk for. Yeah. Uh, yes. But there's That's something that makes teachers feel some pride a little bit of, uh, I don't know, it, it feeds the teacher, teacher ego to talk about working with at-risk children. It makes something, it makes what you're doing more special than if you're just working mm. with, with regular children. Um, I yeah, I mean, and it's, it's interesting because I, I, you know, I was, I predominantly taught, I was in DC for a while, so I was teaching at Howard University, HBCU, uh -huh. uh, Trinity Washington University, which is a pre predominantly minority survey institution, a lot of first generation Black and Latinx girls go there, the undergrad, and then I come to Sarah Lawrence, where it's like, <laughs> white, wealthy land, yeah. and I'm like, so I'm no longer working with the <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I did realize, you know, as much as I, I felt some, you know, I was a little, I, I worried a little bit about going there, but those folks need just what I'm giving, just like anyone else does, right? right? Everyone needs to hear the message, right? Yeah. Um, and receive that type of education. And, and at more on some level, they need it more because they're going into privileged spaces and they need to take this message into those privileged spaces where they can use their privilege to make space, right? Mm. Where other teachers who are not in those spaces, they know everything I'm telling them, they know it in, intuitively, and then they're often limited on what they can do. And so they're actually more frustrated because they mm -hmm. would tell me all the time, Dr. Jones, you told us all, you taught us all this great stuff, but they won't let us do it. They won't let me do project approach. They won't let me do assessments through play. They won't let me do it. And so they're merely more frustrated because they lacked the cultural capital and different things to, to like do it, where at least here in a space, you know, I see my students able to actually do it, right? Mm. To take it knowledge and, and push back so it's a, it's an interesting thing right but no one ever says well yeah like you're working it, it's okay to work with both groups right yeah <laughs> even and I will say Howard University we ran the gamut right like, yeah so there are a lot of rich African-American families who send their kids there and they would look yeah. at me when I would start talking on my class stuff like uh my dad would not like what you're saying right now <laughs> Like, you know, so it was really what a shame. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need teachers to get out of that, like, yeah, because that's part of the savior message, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm here to save you, right? And I don't, yeah. I'm not here to save young children who are, you know, I was born black, I'm gonna die black, right? Um, I grew up in poverty and, and that was terrible, but I didn't need to be saved, right? Mm -hmm. I, I people to recognize that I was a young black girl in an immigrant family um, that had some challenges, but was very bright and just needed the same thing that everyone else got. We moved around a lot in New Jersey, mm -hmm. at rental assistant vouchers. And so you constantly have to move like every year or two. And me, my mom would just be like, we, after the first day of school in new school, she'd be like, huh, what, where'd you start out in reading group? And I'd tell her I'm in the low group. And we would just wait to see like how long until I was moved into the high group. <laughs> because I always started in the low group because that uh -huh. was but within days, oh, no, wow. no more than a week, I was then moved to the high group where I belonged. Uh -huh. They just knew it as this thing that they were going to do to me. And now looking back, like I, I know more about it than I did then. My mom knew nothing. She was an uh -huh. immigrant from Panama. She just yeah. knew that this is where they were going to play. She thought it was because we were new and we moved and they did that to everyone. Ah, uh, yeah. They, you know, they did that to everyone who looked like me. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> they did not do that to everyone. And uh, so, you know, those sorts of memories stay. And it's like, yeah, we, I, so I get it. I want, but I didn't go into teaching, right. To save little children mm -hmm. from 
and his families. And I think I, I try and help teachers to think past that, you know, yeah. still about that, like that, that's not a good idea. Yeah. I think a lot of the equity conversations that I, uh, am party to or hearing or whatever, it's, 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 it's a dream of equity and for the future, we can do this now and everything will be equitable in four years, five years, whatever, instead of what do the children in front of me right now need mm. to experience yeah. equity, to, to, to have the same opportunities. Um, yeah, have, I actually brought that up. Have I was, play. <laughs> yeah, play, right? I was in the, the conference. I saw you had um, Jesse Casino on. I was in the Anji, the first true play conference they did in May of 2019. And I uh -huh. And, you know, we were on a day of like researchers and people were presenting and I, you know, and I, I stood up and I, I said, look, like, I, I believe that this stuff will have good outcomes in the future. We're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, sure. I'm like, but, but I don't want to build my next 15, 20 years of research proving that play makes you smarter to graduate from school. Right. I like, how do we set this up so that people understand that this is what children need right now. Mm -hmm. Right now at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, they need happy, joyful childhoods right now, regardless of whether it's going to make them smarter, ready for college. And, and I believe it will, yeah. but that can't right. be the point. That can't be why we're doing all this because there's no guarantee that you're going to get that outcome. And if right. you don't, if something happens and, and maybe they all don't go to college because they don't want or need to, or they're all not at the top of their class because they're just they're interested in other things then you're saying that play doesn't work right mm -hmm. and I don't want to put my livelihood on that right yeah. so but but I know that right now this is what children need all children all right. over the world need the time and space to play at whatever it is they want to do and however they they want to do yeah I think that I'm sorry the return on investment oh. narrative that you're talking about is so frustrating for me I know that that's maybe the 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 language that someone needs to hear to be convinced to invest or pay attention but it's so dehumanizing <laughs> to the children who are living their childhoods right now to think yeah. the only way we can convince somebody to get on board with this is to make a case for how it won't cost them more in the future yeah i mean and that's that's what policy is about right policy yeah. is making arguments about why something is a worthy investment why a child yeah. why a four-year-old child in washington dc or new york city or lafayette indiana is a worthy <laughs> investment because they're not seen as a worthy investment and they don't have any vote right uh -huh. they're four, so they can't they can't say you invested me or i'm gonna withhold my vote right exactly and so that's yeah it becomes this dangerous game instead of like we we lack we lack a solid unified belief that all four-year-olds are worthy investment. Yeah. <laughs> no matter where they live or they come from, that they are, they have, that they're worthy of being invested in on, mm -hmm. on a deep level. And so we have to make that argument constantly. And yeah, it is dehumanizing when you have to argue for, for the inherent worthiness of a person, even a yeah. little person. Right. <laughs> even yeah. family. Their family right. deserves to like live a decent life and not right. struggle just because they maybe have more kids than they can currently care for, or mm -hmm. they're not working, you know, or they didn't finish school or whatever. Like it doesn't matter. Right. They're, they're worthy of a decent life. Right. Just mm -hmm. because we're here, like we all are here. And so, and I, and I think, and that's really hard for us, right. In the field. And, and, you know, deep down, I think many people do don't, they actually do agree with that, but there's just so much layers of nonsense that we mm -hmm. have to get 
like I always tell people, if we could just get down to the basics, like you want your child to be happy and successful. I want your child to be happy and successful. Let's start from there and work our way up. And then mm-hmm. remind them, like, it's not a threat to your child if this child is also happy. And oh, successful. right. Yes. <laughs> like, and, and like, how do we get people to even that out? And right, this child's success isn't taking away. There's no limited scarcity. There's no limited pool of success for young children. Right? <laughs> feels very limiting because so many people don't grow up and lead the successful lives by whatever measure we're looking at. So you feel that's a limit out there, but that's not, that's not mean, that doesn't mean there's an inherent limit, right? It Mm -hmm. just means that the system is set up that way. Right. And there are so many bigger, more powerful forces than whether we let them play or did ABCs that contribute to that. Um, So, uh, so let's just let them be children and give them that right to play and and good things come from that, right? That's I mean the other side of it is there's the research for decades that has said this is the way the child is biologically built to seek knowledge, to learn about the world around them, to figure out who they are, to figure out who others are, um, which is all you know. If we have to make it fit, that will fit school readiness conversations. Mm. Um, that if we just let children be healthy and uh as joyful as they (laughs) as it can be for them that's gonna that's gonna do help them do well in school if that's our focus if that's our goal Um, yeah or just be well right like I just want to be well and so if you're well and you're if you if you have wellness right I one of the chapters I wrote in a book um about uh, play um about well the global education reform movement germ right and how we can stop it Mm -hmm. play like I looked at this idea of well-being, right? How do we measure child well-being, mm-hmm. right? Comparing um, the Nordic countries, you know, because they do a big thing on, on well-being, Australia, and then United States, right? And the only measures I can find of well-being, child well-being in the United States was through the Children's Defense Fund. And they do uh-huh. this like state of the child report every year, which is terrible, right? When they're looking at poverty, homelessness, how, yeah. you know, all of these indicators, children aren't doing well, right? Mm-hmm. And then but we don't have a national commitment to child well-being and what does that look like, right? But we have this medical terminology called failure to thrive. Yeah. That babies fail to grow and they're not thriving, right? And they're lacking deficient, they're deficient in resources that they need, something's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, but that's more than just a medical term, right? Right. A lot of kids are not thriving. They're not having good well-being because we're not prioritizing their well-being. Yeah. And then well, more than just whether they can read, you know, my biggest fear is that we've created generations of children who can read, but don't like to, and will never. Exactly. Yeah. That is like, I read because it is like breathing to me. <laughs> I, I yes. read because I, I, my kids sometimes, I'm like, you know, I'm over here reading. I, I don't get the iPad out, but I'm reading. I'm always reading. Kids. <laughs> Very rarely. I mean, yeah, sometimes I'm doom scrolling on Facebook, but most yeah. of the time, <laughs> That's just a different kind of reading. It's a different type of reading. And it's usually that I opened up a link to an article and I'm reading the article. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even track how many articles I read in a day off of social media, right? Yeah. Not less than what I used to because now it's all videos and TikTok yeah. and stuff. It really was about reading, 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 reading. And and I, you know, and that's why I read because I, and my mom, remember, you know, she said you were like sitting there, you couldn't read, but you would take the newspaper and put it in front of you. Like you were, <laughs> you were desperate. You wanted to know what that said and you were uh-huh. so different. 
And so I've always wanted to know things. And so, and now it's like, and that's natural. Many children come in the world, want to know things and we're forcing them on these skills that they're not ready for. Mm -hmm. And they learn to read most of them, but they'll never choose to read once they don't have to. Yeah. That's like what, I, I think that's worse. I think it's worse that you can read and don't want to, than you can't, you can't read. We can teach you how to read if you can't read, you can yeah. learn. But I don't know how to give you that love and desire for reading if we took it away from you based on how we taught you how to read. Right. You and children come in so driven for these things, but yeah. we get out of them. Yeah. And and then they they sort of develop an idea about themselves that they are bad learners um, because we've done a poor job of figuring out what's really valuable. <laughs> and uh, if we have to talk about reading in school, there's so much foundational stuff that happens during play that they don't get then. And then that we're only focusing on decoding, right? And not not all the other elements. Yeah, uh, the oral language is so important. I had a year-long PD with a school, a series of charter schools when I was in DC. And, you know, the, the admin just was like, oh, it's all about reading. They need to work on reading, reading. But, you know, when I was talking to the teachers, they knew nothing about oral language development. Mm -hmm. And like, stop teaching the letter B until you teach, until you discuss and have conversations about the sound, but they yeah. need to understand the sound and not be, the letters come later. But if yeah. you're not really just, an oral language is just talking. It's just having conversations <laughs> with children, right? And they're not yeah. doing it because everything is so didactic and instructive about the letters, the letters. Mm -hmm. And so it's like my biggest wish for them was to just like throw the letters out, just get back into oral language, playing mm -hmm. with talking yeah. riddles jokes games all of those things that just build children's right. knowledge of words right singing and nursery rhymes they don't we don't sing and do oh, we don't, don't playfully listen. sing enough anymore with children yeah they don't know the moves to the itsy bitsy mm -hmm. spider and how learning that movement while you're saying those words is really building pre-reading skills yeah right like it's really important that you do that and all of that, right? And all of the movements that we used to do uh -huh. because that's how you remember the words. Your body is like, okay, you're learning it. You're mm -hmm. doing the movement. And then when you see it, you're more likely to make the connections because yeah. you remember sun coming out. And <laughs> it's, it's so important. And most people just take it for granted that yeah. we don't need to, that we can just sit there and S-U-N and teach you that without going like this, without the whole time. <laughs> I expect you to understand what the sun really means and yeah. you won't you won't have the same understanding as if you do the whole thing and so but a lot of it again it's just people coming in saying teach this way and they don't know what they're talking about right can a child learn these things yes any a child can learn anything that you force down them but is it the <laughs> best way for them to right. learn no and I think that's what's so important about Tennessee was that it wasn't the best way yeah. for them to learn and it was not good for them as they continued on. They were missing basic foundational blocks that would have helped them later on. Right. Never got those, right? And so how do we get people to realize that, you know, early childhood is powerful. It's the most powerful time in our lives, right? Yeah. I would say all the way from conception, right? To all of it. I mean, until 25, right. till the executive function. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole time's busy for the, the brain. Whole time that we can't get back to. I'm 45. Yep. I can't get back to that time, right? <laughs> But it was, it's so foundational and it's so important. And to know that there are so many people who are going about it the wrong way, it, yeah. it, it, it really does. It's, it's, it's frustrating. And it's like, you want to be on a mission to like stop all that, but how yeah. like one conversation at a time, you know, mm -hmm. 
I'm in an online group and a mom is saying that her 2.5 year her 2.5 year old oh son yeah the talk in his preschool because he's not unable to sit still hitting doing and I'm like he's 2.5 I said please find another preschool yeah please. Even if you find a lady in her home who lets the kids be feral, it's better <laughs> if you're taking this boy. Like he's two and a half years old. He's not supposed to sit still all day. Yeah. Normal behavior. It's not great, but it happens. And mm -hmm. you just have to be willing to like redirect, help him process his emotions, talk about what he's doing, use his words. Mm -hmm. The hitting will go down, empower the other children to be like, no, don't hit me. Right. So that they speak up like there's so much you can do, but you're getting called into a meeting telling you your 2.5 year old is going to get kicked out of this preschool. Where, where are like, I just, like, like yeah. she's in an area that doesn't have a lot of options for mm -hmm. child. And she doesn't know what she's going to do if he gets kicked out of this program. Yeah. And I just want to like scream, like it's, there's nothing wrong with him. Right. And if he's adopted. That doesn't make it. There's nothing wrong with him. It doesn't matter. He's 2.5 years old. Exactly. Our normal 2.5 right. year old. Developmentally to be expected. <laughs> I just want to find this director and be like, what's the problem? Yeah. Right? Well, it. It's frustrating. You've got a lot going on. I remember when I was a director, it was yeah. other parents coming up to me. When are you going to kick that kid out? I said, mm -hmm. I would leave my, I would quit my job before I put him out. Mm -hmm. He might be a handful, but that that's okay. That's my job. Yeah. And so I know the pressures come from, it's not just this director. It's like, I'm over it. Right. It's other teachers, other parents, other kids saying that this kid is too much. Right. But we got to change that attitude. We got to be yeah. like, I hear you. He's a challenge, but this is our job. Yeah. This is our job to meet that challenge, right? Yeah. To help him, to support him in any way that we can. He has not done anything warranting that, right? Yeah, there are a few small percentage of kids who have severe issues that most preschool teachers and directors can't handle. And when that happens, I hope you are able to like, hey, this is beyond our capabilities mm -hmm. to handle. Let's find someone else in the community who's, who's better to deal with this. But that's not what we're seeing here, right? right. Seeing, and it, I get it. It's hard. It's hard being a preschool teacher. It's hard keeping preschool teachers. Yeah. You know, they don't want to show up to work every day and deal with a challenging child. But, you know, I think we have to like get to the point where our goal is to not kick kids out of preschool. for Absolutely. Kids. Yeah. I think, um, or maybe I wonder how, how much a couple of things factor into this um, sort of over-reliance on school models and early academics if if part of it is the unevenness of qualifications for people working with young children in in the United States like in Indiana there's essentially four different license or three different types of being regulated and then rules for being legal but not not licensed and uh and and the qualifications for someone to be a, a quote-unquote lead teacher vary in each of those settings like it could be a cda it could be nothing it could be an associate's degree and you know you mentioned that early childhood programs are disappearing from colleges so then we have folks with elementary ed which is a great degree if that's the work you're doing but maybe doesn't equip you to come in and 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 support play in an early childhood setting so i think that factors in and then just our high turnover rate like if you've constantly got 40% staff turnover rate, you need an easy curriculum that you can just put in front of whoever just came into the room. And so letters and numbers and shapes and colors give us that. Um, and, and you know, I, those are both really hard things to solve, but I think it could, needs to be part of the conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all of those things, right? It's, it's the nature of the work. Like, you know, 
it's it's already early childhood is seen as this kind of babysitting profession, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot like people don't take the care part seriously. Right. So, you know, they're they the thought of changing diapers, cleaning up after eating and all that turns them off. Like they don't want to deal with all that. Then you throw in a mix of the behaviors are challenging and you don't know what to do. And like our society is more like we punish challenging behaviors, right? right? I used to have this slide where I would go over with students, like we, if a child can't read, we teach them how to read. If they can't count, we teach them how to count. If they can't behave, we dot, 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 <laughs> we punish, right? Yeah. We don't teach kids how to behave or think that they're the way to like model that. So right. that whole system throws it into a, into a loop. And, you know, you're working a ton of hours that are horrible. I mean, I tried to do the early childhood hours. What in yeah. the, what? I, I did a, I, I was doing a research study when I was in an undergrad at the uh, World Bank in DC. They had a Reggio inspired preschool and I was uh-huh. studying Reggio in a research program and wanted to like, so I, I reached out to them and said, can I come in? Can I observe, interview your teachers? I want to study Reggio. He's like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I was then getting ready to finish my schooling and I'm looking for a job. And he's like, oh, we'd love to hire you as a preschool teacher here. And I was like, okay. And he's like, the hours are like nine to six and the paper. <laughs> Oh, and I said, so no, I have to leave by four o'clock to get to my waitressing job in Georgetown by 4.30 and I can take this job because then the money won't matter because I'm going to work where I make the real money, right? Uh-huh. He could not let me leave work from nine to four. He needed me there from nine to 6.30. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to have a second job like in, in most industries yeah. thirty. And literally, I, so I took my kindergarten job in the DC area and I was, I started out, I think we were up to 30, 30 something thousand that year. They just bumped us up. <laughs> yeah, it was actually a lot. We went from 27 to 37 the year yeah. I started. He was only offering 26. Mm-hmm. So I was supposed to take $11,000 left, which I was willing to do. I just needed to go to the restaurant where I still was, <laughs> making, I was making $1,100 in a weekend. Like I was uh-huh. making good money there. And so, and they couldn't do it. So the hours are terrible, right? So yeah. the hours are terrible. They're long and they're, ter- and you have all of these things. And then, yeah, the skills that people are asked to have, they don't, they aren't given, right? They're not trained on how to mm-hmm. be or, or children and the nature of the work. Like you said, it's like tied to the, to the priest, to the schools, right? Mm-hmm. I was at Kishik preschool. I was doing some work observing there. I've never been in a more relaxed preschool environment yeah. in my entire like, it's like yeah. normally I go in the schools and I'm literally like clocking like clock like how long to like it's uncomfortable watching people yes. try and manage young children in ways that are not natural yes right? like sitting through circle time is painful because it's so like an uh, don't touch me don't touch me you're like forcing kids transitions are so painful to watch because kids don't want to move to the next activity they're being forced to do something can I tell you Keisha have removed all of that nonsense right mm-hmm. literally all of it is gone. The children are free to like move around and, and the teachers are so relaxed. I mean, it yeah. was 1.30 and I didn't even realize. I didn't even lunch. I didn't even do nothing because I had to look at the clock. We were just, we were just playing. And it's so immersive that like, there's no issue. There's no, so yeah, the kids go from inside to outside. That's like the biggest yeah. transition. It's not really challenging. They can eat when they want to eat, right? I was like, it's 9.30. Why is he eating? She's like, he's hungry. He eat. Like, <laughs> I was like, wow, it was revolutionary. That yeah. you can go get your lunchbox sit down and start snacking Uh I don't know why he wanted to eat at 9 30 maybe he had breakfast at six that could be when he pulled into the parking lot he got so excited that his stomach dropped and he got hungry I don't know it doesn't (laughs) matter who cares at 9 30 grab your snack if you want some and they can all day and so the freedom there that the children had was transferred to the teachers they were very free they walked around they observed they checked in and I just never looked at the clock until 1 30. Uh And I just like that kind. So if we had that kind of environment for all early childhood teachers, maybe then 
the low pay, the long hours, and these things aren't so terrible when you're not forcing three and four-year-olds to engage in school. Right. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Let them be, you know, yeah. like it was so, it's so, so I think we can relax the entire environment and really help teachers reclaim, yeah. right? This space to be a joyous space for them and for the children. Take away all that pressure, right? Yeah. And sometimes are the kids bored? Yeah, well, kid look bored. He's kind of walking around looking bored. It's okay. There's nothing yeah. wrong with being bored. Walk right. around and be bored all you want. Eventually, you're going to find something to do. Or you're going to keep walking around being bored. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So, well, we find he was just mumbling to himself. And, blah, 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 and eventually, yeah. he did something else. But for 15 minutes, he just kind of wandered. Yeah. I think we're so afraid of that. We're afraid of children being bored and not having anything to do that we constantly try right. to give them something to do. We look and at we, that child and we say, oh, he doesn't know how to play. Exactly. No, he's playing in his mind. He's playing in his mind. He's, yeah. He's walking around, having conversations. He's thinking about stuff. He's talking about stuff. Sometimes he talked to an adult. Sometimes he wouldn't. Yeah. He came by me. He got a lesson in the video camera and all that. And then he was uh-huh. thankful. He walked away. He <laughs> like, it was, nice. Oh, I'm so of that freedom. And I yeah. saw it in China. I saw it in Anji, the freedom that the children have. And that's why I really started focusing on this idea of play of freedom, play of liberation for both children and teachers, mm-hmm. right? How do we get people to understand? It's not just about the children. It is for the children. But what I want teachers to know, it's for you too. Yeah. You will be liberated in this in ways that you don't, might not realize you need. You need this type of liberation so that you can be sustained in this work because there's nothing sustaining about it right now, Heather. It's right. awful. And I, you know, yeah, the stress that teachers are under, the burnout, the mental health challenges are real, but the different groups, so Keisha's site, I've also done some research in Pittsburgh Uh and in elementary school, they were talking about how the year they're doing play lab, how the three teachers in the program, how, yeah, it really helped the children's mental health, their mental health, they built community, they were less stressed, you know, they were doing, so it's, I see it, I see it happening Mm -hmm. super important that we get teachers to realize that you're going to help the children because they need this, but you're going to help yourself and you're going to recommit it to your profession, right? In China, teachers are so into learning the science of thinking and learning like young children because they get to be, they get Uh to really think about that deeply. And it's amazing, right? I think Carol gets to really think about caring for young children Mm -hmm and seeing that as so important that she can focus on it and make it such a big part of her work because she's not hung up right with mm-hmm. all the other things she's able to think about these things and I wonder what else would teachers think about yeah they were allowed to like zero in on the day-to-day the moment you're having right now with that child and, and really you know get into it I think it, it's so powerful right I think um you you mentioned being in Keisha's program and not really how much time had passed. Do you know we've been doing this for almost an hour, this conversation? <laughs> has, all day. I, I know it definitely day. doesn't it feel like it's me. been that I long. And I, uh, <laughs> I find that I am I'm, I'm not talking as much as I do usually when I record because I'm just listening to you and enjoying it. <laughs> Thank you. And I know uh, I can go on and jump from topic to topic, but it's like, they're all make sense in my mind. There's that's a huge right. Just pulled all those things together. <laughs> that's very much what the listeners of this show expect from this show. It's kind of following where it goes. That's the nerd in us, right? Like, exactly. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. My early childhood people never question how I go from, but my regular friends are like, how did you jump over there? I'm like, oh, you don't know how the early childhood nerd brain works. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So is there any, you know, last thought? that you or how would you how would you kind of wrap this up yeah I mean I, I just ugh, there's so much that I want to say but yeah. 
we really want another episode sometime. I know. I want teachers to really realize that, like, I get it. I know I haven't been teaching in the classroom a long time, but I've been doing another side project I've been doing with my colleagues out of Southern Utah University is research on teachers during COVID. Mm-hmm. We did two phases of the study. We've interviewed, surveyed thousands of teachers. We've read heartbreaking um, snapshots of like teacher stress, burnout, and mental health. And so that's also pushing me because like this is real, like mm-hmm. it's unsustainable is what we're yeah. finding out. Levels of stress and burnout are real. Like education was already in danger. Like it's crumbling. Like it's going to, it's going to fall. And I worry about that because though I still have my, out, my, my, I, my challenges with education, right? I'm still a believer in public education. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe that it's important for our democracy, which is also in shambles. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I, I believe in it, but I also am like, I'm troubled. I'm, I'm troubled. Yeah. Like, I, I think, you know, I stepped down from my job because I wanted to work from home, but I was troubled recruiting students to spend $70,000 on a master's degree when I believe our degree is top notch and worth every penny, yeah. right? Come into a field that I know right now is slowly hurting. Right. I'm so teaching at a community college at the associate's degree level, and I have the same difficulty um, trying to yeah. make that case for people to come into the field. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get it. Like it's, it's not, I, I'm not blaming teachers in none of this. Like some teachers think if you're, if you're, you know, saying they're not doing enough play, then it's, it's not, it's not you, right? Like, it, it, but it's happening to you, right? And yeah. so my thing that I tell teachers is like, you have to take what's within your locus of control to change. What you do in that classroom remains in your locus of control. I know there are people trying to tell you, you got to do this, you got to do that. But every day when you're in that room with those children, that is your area. That is what you can do. How you see your work remains in your locus of control. So I need you to really think about what you can do to frame the work you're doing every day, to think about your individual practices, the relationships you have with children and their families and and, and yourself and take all of that and do it for you and for them. It's, it's about you, the children and their families. And you have every right to make that the complete focus of everything you do and make that the guiding star. What I do in this room is about them, me, and their families. And if what I'm doing is not supporting them, me, and their families, then we're not doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I need teachers to lean into that power, right? I also tell my students, look, they're like, oh, I don't, you're a hot commodity. They need you, yeah. okay? You go to the interview <laughs> and they say something that doesn't even sound right, goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. Do not take that job. You yeah. are not in that situation, kids. If you're not willing to move or whatever, trust me, you are a hot commodity. They need teachers more than anything else right now. Yeah. So be picky. Find the place. Teachers who are teaching, they need you. They're not going to fire you. They need you. And I was just going to say, this is the time to pl- take risks for play because no one's getting fired. Stand in your truth. If you say, I am doing this because it's good for my children, for me, and for their families, I dare someone to come tell you that that's not okay, right? Like, And if they do, that's not where you want to be find someone who's going to support you right but you got to be able to stand in that truth and do it otherwise you're just you're gonna you're not gonna survive right and it's not meant for you to survive like don't get it twisted these these legislators some of them don't want public education to survive they never have they're doing all these things because they want to make it hard they want to make it difficult um they want to push poor kids into online programs or whatever i don't i don't know what the end game is they want to get rid of government schools you know that sort of thing (laughs) um so they're making it hard on purpose. Yeah. And and I think if you're going to stay committed, then you got to center yourself, your students and their families and the, the community as well. But that's a part of it. Right. And I think if you just take that message to heart, do whatever it takes, play is a great way. It's low cost. Yeah. <laughs> you can do it. It can change your life. Right. It could change the lives of the kids and their families and, and just be that advocate. 
you know, there's hope. There's got to be hope. We have we have to have hope when we keep doing this. And I I see hope in in the work of play and in that work in film. I want teachers to be hopeful, but I want them to be real, right? They've yeah. got to they got to stand up and and do something. And we're with you. Reach out to DEY. Let us know how we can support you. We've got some events coming up, a town hall where we want to hear about the awful things you've been asked to do that are not based in child development. How we can help you resist those things. Um, we got the Summer Institute coming up um, and we're going to have lots of great speakers and you can come hear from them as well. And yeah, we want to support you. So yeah, it's DEY.org, right? Is that the, yep. the website? That's where they can find you. Good stuff there too. Yeah, lots more than what you just ran through. There's a lot of good stuff on that website. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Denisha. This was really um, like, uh, this is sort of my day off, but it's making me want to yeah, right. log off and go do something if I can get back to the writing part of my job like, yeah I'm gonna do this all day why do I have yeah. to write stuff why don't I just yeah. talk about it and yeah then... yeah well I appreciate all that you're doing and all that DEY is doing and uh, just thank you again for coming on and uh, thanks everybody else for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd and that's the show now go get your nerd on has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.